Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. So glad you could be with me as we kind of get ready. How else are we going to describe it without losing our sanity, what little sanity we have? Trying to get ready for next season. Yeah, it's going to be here sooner than you think. Blocked out another spot on my calendar recently. How about you? Anyway, one way to do that is to get a different perspective on dog training and performance. We're going to have Josh Michaelis here. He's a hound hunter and a dog food representative for one of our sponsors, Joy Dog Food. Uh, this guy knows his stuff. He's a competitor, and a lot of the stuff that he will talk about will be transferable from hounds to bird dogs, which he has also worked with. So he's one of us, but he's got a new fresh look at things and speaking of fresh and new uh then hannah leonard will join us she's with the organization called sporting lead free keep an open mind we're going to talk about the advantages and the challenges of shooting non-toxic ammo she'll be magically transporting herself and me from Pheasant Fest in Minneapolis. So a lot to talk about there, including our Handle It segment on running birds, why it's not so bad sometimes. And you, you're going to show us an old dog photo or two from social media and kindle some very fond memories. So looking forward to all of that right here on the Upland Nation podcast, made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, True Lock Choke Tubes, MidwayUSA.com, and Joy Dog Food. Well, you know the uh, phrase, do as I say, not as I do? Well, <laughs> I'm a victim of it once in a while as well. Yeah, Flick, he's, he's a pretty good, uh, pretty good retriever most of the time. Uh, but I discovered something recently, uh, especially in the tall brush out behind our place that uh, seems to be uh, yet another thing to put on my to-do list in terms of training with him. Uh, tell me about this. You've, you've discovered it too, I bet. You train a dog to retrieve. Over and over again, you're lobbing the bumpers or you got dead birds or all of the above and the dog is doing flawlessly in the yard, off the table, in the field, it doesn't matter. And then you throw it farther or shorter. Or in my case, I finally pulled out one of those, you know, uh, retriever trainer gizmos. You, you load it with a little uh, blank cartridge and you shoot it and the bumper goes way off. Well, poor Flick, his perspective literally is so warped to the same distance for every retrieve that we're going back to square one. Yeah, I'm trying a few things there just to make sure that he understands, yeah, sometimes it goes farther, sometimes it goes closer, starting with letting him see that thing bounce on the ground. So we got to have open territory for that. Can't do it in the sagebrush and the junipers in my place. The other one is... Uh, release him a little bit sooner from his woe so that he can start chasing in the right direction before it falls to the ground. Anyway, wish me luck. Um, 
Maybe you'll see that on TV next year. Anyway, it seems to be um, working so far. Um, you, I asked on social media recently uh, for, you know, a tough one. Show us an old dog photo and then kindle a fond memory. And that's the fun part. We're going to focus on that. I've got some great ones here. Rashawn Gordon, hope you're well down there. Starting to warm up already, isn't it? He's got a picture of him and his old dog, Addie, her last hunt at age 17. <clears throat> you guys know what I'm talking about here. The face is virtually all white, but she's looking at him as if he is the only thing in the universe. Mike LaRoe shows me a picture of his beautiful white pointer, <clears throat> some, I'll call it brown on the face but a beautiful white body rock at 12 after his retirement acting as a live backing dummy for our youngsters in training <laughs> the youngest pups mike says would occasionally jump on him during these drills but he would not flinch he would also stand release after zero training yeah i believe it no e-collar great great story Thanks, Mike. <clears throat> Glenn Matthews, uh, Jet. Yeah, looks like a black lab from here when he turned 14. He's almost 15 now. Traveled over 200,000 miles in pursuit of birds in the field. Yeah, again, very gray muzzle, beautiful dog. Brian Wormick says, I've had many GSPs in black lab. My current chocolate lab, Geneva Bell, is my best. I think that's always true, Brian. We become better trainers. And yes, maybe we become better shoppers for dogs as well. Not only is uh, Geneva Bell a great pointing lab, the most wonderful house dog, loves everyone. Musket, that's a great name for a dog. This one in particular is a yellow lab. Frank Luke shows her with a idyllic setting in the background. A volunteer with California Department of Fish and Wildlife since he was six months old, working the Heritage Bird Program. I'm not sure if I know what that one is, uh, Frank, but, oh, I get it. Taking young first-time hunters and families, now retired. Well, I wish Musket a happy and long retirement. All right, got to go to one of Don Erlinson's old wires. Ellie Mae at 15 years old. She gave us much more than she knew. She looks like it. She's the picture of wisdom. It's a nice tight close-up of a wire hair with, I mean, every aspect of her furnishings is gray. Eyebrows, the cheeks, the beard, it's all that way. Yeah. Hey, thank you all so much. I can't go any deeper. Or I'll just be sad the rest of the podcast. And you don't want that. We've got a lot to cover here. So uh, stick around. First off, we are brought to you in part by PointerShotguns.com. You know, all their shotguns have a seven-year warranty. And I know from personal, well, semi-personal experience, uh, Tom got one and needed some work done on his. Um, they'll take care of you. Now compare that to anybody else. Anybody else in the industry. Seven-year warranty on a shotgun? PointerShotguns.com. Learn all about it. And then make sure you understand there's now three, four, 
five, six, six or seven color choices for the metal on your gun. From case coloring, I can't wait, mine's on the way. Nickel receiver. The standard bluings, plus Cerakoting in several color choices. Shop your model. Find a nearby retailer at PointerShotguns.com. And enjoy dog food. One of our newest supporters here, and I sure appreciate it. Appreciate that. Is that what I said? Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, Family owned and operated. 100% American made and American ingredients. So all the stuff that they're sourcing is from right here in the US of A. Fixed formulas. So um, always going to have the same stuff in the same proportions. And convenient. Joy Dog Food is available at feed stores throughout the United States. Put some joy in your dog. JoyDogFood.com Well, this is a conversation I'd love to have uh, more often. I'll never forget being in a room full of houndsmen a long time ago and we were on the same side, but there seemed to be a lot of people in that room that were not on our side. Here's one who is from joydogfood.com. Yeah, that's where you learn more about them. Josh Michaelis joins me. Josh, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you, Scott. You know, you are, yeah, first and foremost, a hound hunter now, but you've been in the bird dog world for quite a while as well. Tell me, tell me about your, um, you know, your, give me the backstory on Josh Michaelis, bird dogs, hound hunting, the whole bit. You bet. You know, I was born and raised right here in North Missouri on the uh, Iowa border, and we've had uh, Tring Walker Coon Hounds for as long as I can remember. My grandfather, uh, my brother, myself, and all that stuff, and, uh, I went through a pretty good stretch there where that's all I cared about and all I wanted to do. And then uh, when I was about 17, 18 years old, a friend of mine took me quail hunting right here around the house with uh, his English pointers. And since we were, you know, best friends and he had English pointers, I could not get English pointers. So I had to get English setters. (laughs) A compromise. (laughs) That's right. Okay. Setter people don't take it personally. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, I I picked me up a couple setters. And at that time, as I got older, we, we had a construction business and I was doing that and I was traveling a lot for that. And uh, I've always had hounds, but they are such just, just like the bird dogs are. They're such a big priority and a big time consuming, you know, thing to have. And I had to have one or the other. So for a while, uh, that's all I had was, was my two setters. And I traveled around doing a lot of upland hunting, you know, Montana, uh, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, and, uh, I had a great time doing it. I, I enjoyed it, but eventually I got back to my roots and the competition aspect of the hound stuff is so appealing to me that, you know, I went back to hunting hounds and I've been doing it ever since. You know, it's funny you bring up competition uh, because we we have ways to do that. And I was asked to make a couple TV series on that idea and just turned them down, basically. But uh, yep. but in the hound world, it is it is your your Coachella. 
you right. guys you guys are you guys get together and that's where it all happened man the hair is standing up on the back of my neck the the <laughs> times i've been around hound hunting have been very few but it's always that way there's adrenaline in the air you're you're just sucking it in through your lungs what is it about that competition and a hound hunt that that is is so appealing to you guys I think a lot of it has to do with the pride in our animals and the want and the need to show them off because, you know, at this point in time, we hunt for huge purses, uh, $100,000 purses, brand new pickups, you know, large entry fee hunts. And we get the same feeling doing that as we did entering a local $15 event that paid nothing but a ribbon. Uh, it's, it's something about, uh, taking a young dog, just like a bird dog as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's something about taking a young dog and molding it and getting it to where you want it. And you just kind of want to show the world uh, the product that you've made out of out of those amazing animals. Yeah, you know, it, uh, in a lot of ways, the difference I've seen is the big money, if you want to call it that, the big money bird dog field trials um, um, are dominated by professionals, Mm-hmm. Um, I think to a great degree that's true in your world as well. But there's always room for the guy with uh, four or five dogs in a wooden box in the back of his flatbed, isn't there? There always is, and it's a it's a one wonderful community that can go, you know, any way that you want. And I just <laughs> my heel, my healer's barking right there in the background. <laughs> but it's a. Uh, it's a wonderful community and there's so many levels to it you know it's can be whatever you want to make it but you look at a guy i'm going to bring a a guy that i've got experience with up and that's steve sykes you know he he went and paid a four thousand dollar entry fee to a hundred thousand dollar hunt with a dog that he raised trained and bred himself and he won the whole thing He's not a professional. He's he's a I believe he's a electrical lineman, and the man went home with a hundred thousand dollar check with the dog that he raised from a seven week old puppy. Wow! And so so it can be done. And yes, you're right. It is a lot of professional handlers with uh, guys paying their way, and those are good guys. But they all started out in the same place, you know, just like Mr. Sykes did. You know, and and just before we leave the hound hunting world, just just tell me what it is. Um, about the dogs that you most admire uh their heart if you can find it uh the drive because <laughs> <laughs> we put so much pressure on these dogs traveling up and down the road and competing in such strange places and to find one that can do that away from home consistently is so hard i mean and when you do i just admire that that dog can stay so focused around what's going on him around him in you know such a strange place in a strange situation all right let's make uh let's switch gears um hopefully most of the time our dogs aren't barking when they're chasing game or seeking game but 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 there is something to be said for that as well um are there any similarities uh, as a guy who, who basically has straddled both worlds, bird mm-hmm. dogs and hound dogs? What are the similarities, whether it's in, let's start with conditioning, for example, getting a dog into shape. Uh, we all need to do that. In fact, this time of year, that's what we should be working on, everybody. But yeah, don't tell me, I'm trying. Uh, what, yeah. what about that? Can you give us some hints on conditioning our dogs that, that they, they could do what your dogs do? 
Um, I would turn that around, Scott, because your guys' dogs uh, are in better shape than ours. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, yeah, we, we, we've all got GPS and telemetry and we know how fast our dogs are going and how, how many miles they cover in a day, but there are not very many sporting and working dogs that work as hard as a pointing dog or a flushing dog that hunts all day long. Uh-huh. There's just not, you know, uh, we really like to keep our dogs in top notch condition. Uh, we use things like slap mills. Uh, we, we have roading harnesses for our dogs where we, we can road them and stuff like that. But the main thing is to hunt them. Uh, there's, there's no replication for hunting them, you know, and we're lucky enough to be able to hunt ours 12 months a year. Yeah. Uh, we hunt them in the heat of the summer. We hunt them in the depths of winter. Uh, so, you know, we've got a leg up there. Our seasons are all year long. And so we can, we can get that dog out and we can get it hunted and get it in shape. But yeah, there's a, a well hunted, a well hard hunted, uh, pointing dog is in better shape than, than our hounds are. I mean, just as far as endurance and mileage and things like that, that they can cover at the rate that they cover it at. Wow. I'd, I'd have never thought that, but you're the yeah. expert. And now we have the data to prove it because, yes. uh, like you said, we're all using collars of one sort or another. Yep. Um, uh, just for the record, uh, Slat Mills would be a great name for a bluegrass band from Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree. But, but, but what the hell is a Slat Mill? A uh, slap mill is uh, basically a dog treadmill. Okay. And it, right. uh, yeah. yeah, it is not like our treadmills. You know, it, it's, they're, they're well built. There's lots of good slap mill companies out there. Some, some of the listeners want to Google that, but, uh, they're a fantastic thing for a dog, especially when, you know, we do all our work at night and some nights that, you know, you've had a long, hard day at work and you want to get home, but you know, your dog needs to get four or five miles in. You can just put them on the slap mill. Wow. And, and that they they it's more more like running than on a regular treadmill yeah i'm going to look into that for around here yes. in february <laughs> yes they, they are fantastic uh they're well the well-built ones are, are fairly expensive and pricey but they're worth every penny uh, how about the training side of things i know you're training for different things and to to a great degree um Two-thirds of the listeners uh, want our dog to find game and hold still after they find it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there are other training aspects, um, and they may boil down to what I'll loosely describe as obedience, if you will. What do you do do and what do we do that there may be some commonality, or maybe there's some things you do that we we should adopt? Um, The recall is important with ours just like it is yours. Um, one thing that houndsmen do not adopt as often as upland or retriever guys is the force training. Yeah. Uh, we don't, we don't have a habit of putting pressure on a dog until it does something right. Uh, they have a bad habit of putting pressure on a dog when it does something wrong. And I don't, I think that's very transferable and guys are getting better about it. You know, when they're collar conditioning, uh, that's something that houndsmen don't do enough or as well as they should. Uh, but there's a lot of aspects that are similar in exposing your puppy to certain situations. Uh, you know, you, you know, just as well as I do, Scott, that these things are sponges and they learn so quick and so fast. And our hounds have really gotten a lot more intelligent, to be honest, in the last 20, 30 years. And we're just coming around to uh, having pets and hunting dogs at the same time. Uh, that's not as common in the hound world as it is, you know, the upland stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I understand the, some of the practical reasons for that. Some of you mm-hmm. have have 
truckloads of dogs. Yes, yes. And uh, whether you're running them all together or not is immaterial. You still got to feed them, house them, uh, keep them hydrated. And that's a logistical challenge as well. But but there is something to be said for dogs in the house relating to humans all the time, isn't there? I agree. And, you know, it it, it depends on the type of, of hunting we're doing with the hounds. You know, you look at someone with a, a kennel full of foxhounds or the bear hunting guys or the guys that are hunting big game out west, they got to have multiple dogs. You know, they got to have a good pack. Uh, it's got to be a cohesive pack and they got to work well together. Uh, ours are, our competition dogs are, are not as similar as that. I mean, they, we, we encourage independence. We want that dog to be alone when it's turned loose in a crowd. Uh, there's a lot of little nuances to that. And with us traveling up and down the road with one, maybe two dogs instead of, you know, six to eight, you know, running a bear or a lion or, or a bobcat or something like that. It's a lot easier to have that inside dog, that pet, that, that bond with its owner more so than the pack. Yeah. Makes sense to me. It's it, again, yeah. it boils down to logistics. Right. Um, Hey, you're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden uh, with all the questions. All the answers are coming from Josh Michaelis of Joy Dog Food. He's a hound hunter, bird dog guy, and all-around nice person. Josh, tell me a little bit about um, nutrition, speaking of Joy Dog Food. Um, what, how and why do you do what you do with, uh, with what you're giving your dogs to put in their mouths? Nutrition is, in my opinion, uh, 51% of what makes a quality dog. Uh, how they're housed, how they're fed, how they're watered, and how they're taken care of is is so important, for, especially for what we do going up and down the road. And so you're looking at things in a dog food like palatability. Uh, the dog has to want to eat it, even when it's nervous, even when it's in a strange situation. Because when we're at a week-long event, uh, that's super important to keep that the calories in the dog. Uh, when you're looking at uh, the type of dog food, you want something that's super digestible. Uh, you want something that's going to have all the ingredients to keep that lean muscle mass and the weight on the dog when it's really working hard, especially in the winter. Uh, when I uh, switched to Joy Dog Food years ago, I was super impressed with it and how it kept the weight on the hardest hunting dogs, especially the picky dogs. I've got one out here in the yard that's 13 years old that's never ate well. Uh, he's always struggled eating on the road. And, you know, the palatability and the digestibility has been a godsend for dogs like that. It's funny. I just, uh, before you came on, we talked about old dogs and, and look, basically looked at photos of old dogs on a podcast. Yeah, I challenge mm-hmm. anybody else to try that. Anyway, uh, it's so true and and as they age but but as they compete and like you said uh you know you're at a week-long competition we're on a week-long road trip hunting our dogs virtually every day um besides great food do you use any tricks to get your dogs to eat at night um luckily i haven't had a problem keeping them eating uh for a while but i know back in the day when when duds was struggling that's his that's the old dog's name you know i would be down at I would be down at the Lone Star 5000 in Texas, or I would be at the World Hunt, and, you know, you're gone for seven or eight days, 
and we used a lot of toppers. Uh, we used stuff, and you want to be careful of what you're encouraging your dog to eat with because any little change in diet when they're on the road or they're in a situation they're not comfortable with can can really lead to a disastrous consequence too. So you have to be careful there. Um, I used a lot of hamburger meat. Yeah, uh, that was that was one thing that I did mix in with this kibble. And was super digestible, super good for the dog. Uh, but there's there's tricks. Uh, wet dog food will yeah. will encourage a dog a little bit sometimes. But I know there's a lot of toppers, uh, a lot of those products out right now that come in small bags that don't need to be refrigerated that you can just open up, put on the dog food, and and that'll help a lot. Absolutely, I'm a big believer. I mine actually doesn't go on the top; it goes at the bottom, so they have to work through all the right. kibble right. first. I, That's right. I, I like those little um, those little those canned dog foods for little dogs that you yep. see those work really well and the other one that i i've been experimenting with is this um fortiflora the, yep. you know that that you know what that is what what do they yeah that's them? a farina a product that's Pro, a good that's a very good product yeah it's probiotic Pro, probiotic yeah yep. okay uh cool um let's talk a little bit about the part that uh, one of the reasons I never have gone on a wild pig hunt with hounds in Hawaii, and mm-hmm. that is, I mean, you, you're seeing way more injuries to dogs than we ever will in the bird dog world. Um, what do you see most often, and what can we learn from that in terms of how to repair it or how to avoid it? Our big issue, uh, especially when we travel down to places like Texas, and sometimes it is hogs. We don't want our dogs running hogs when we're hunting coons. Sure. But that happens. You know, dogs dogs are dogs, and they make mistakes sometimes. But uh, our biggest injury is thorns. Oh. Uh, our dogs tree up trees, and they're they're in trees a lot. You know, they're, they're, they spend a majority of the time that they are loose, you know, treeing. And a lot of trees have thorns, especially in Texas. So we are constantly uh, fighting foot injuries with thorns. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of Epsom salt soaks. Uh, we always check our dog's feet at the end of the every hunt because sometimes that thorn's in there and they, they're so pumped up on adrenaline, they're not limping yet. And so you want to get you want to get it out as fast as you can. You want to get it soaked as fast as you can. We use a mixture of Epsom salt, hydrogen peroxide, and water. And it's always warm. Uh, the dogs are used to it. You know, they get comfortable. We carry a small jug that, uh, you know, we use just for that. But that's that's our biggest injury on the coon hunting side. Uh, the hog hunting guys and the bear hunting guys yeah, and the lion yeah. guys, they have all kinds of injuries. And they are some of the best houndsmen are, are some of the best vets to part-time veterinarians. They, have, uh, they, can, they can fix up a dog in the field better than just about any other hunting group. They have no choice. Um, right. Um, now I, now g- tell me how to get your dog to stand still to soak his feet in Epsom salt and water. I, uh, uh, do you have a big tub or you put a foot one foot in a bowl at a time? or how? One, one, foot, I, one foot at a time. <laughs> I need this help. <laughs> we... Uh, our dogs are pretty a hound by nature is pretty placid when you got your hands on them sure. uh, they're they're pretty easy to manipulate and they're pretty easy about holding still but you're holding that dog's foot in there the whole time yeah. i mean you've got you've got a hand on the collar you've got a hand on the foot and we use a little narrow it actually i use a protein powder jug that is uh i can fill up put the cap on shake it up real good and it'll fit one foot in and then i just put it in there i hold the foot i hold the collar and a 10-minute soak is about what we usually do on them. Wow. I love it. Well, that's great great information. I'm using that mainly for 
mud between their toes. But yep, it's the yep. same idea. Yeah. Um, you guys pioneered radio telemetry. The houndsmen mm-hmm. are the guys we have to thank, and, and to a large degree still, the innovations in GPS technology uh, are developed in large part based on experiences in the field with, with guys who are coonhound mm-hmm. aficionados and things like that. What have you learned about GPS collars that maybe we ought to adopt? Um, you know, from the the upland hunters that I've been around, they've they've always been just you know while we're getting the newest, latest, greatest, they're getting the model before that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, well, that's because we're th- cheap, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes too, and it's. I, I'm not going to say it's not as necessary uh, because there's a good majority of the time that you guys are looking at your dogs. You know, you can see yeah, them. They're, yeah, in, they're yeah. in your eyesight. Uh, ours are not ever. You know, we turn them loose at night, and that's the last time we see them. Everything else is through telemetry and just the sound of their voices. But I think that adopting the latest telemetry and using it and knowing how to use it is important. And in my experience, you know, you guys got some of the best noses on dogs on the planet. Uh, let them branch out, let them use them. And, you know, you can let those dogs work a long ways away from you now, as opposed to 20 years ago when you couldn't watch them on a screen do it. Yeah, you know, that is a great observation, and it's absolutely true. One of the most common questions I get is, my dog ranges so far in that direction, then so far in that direction, how do I rein him in? And I, my, my standard answer is, don't. Just make it yeah train him so he's steady when he gets out there and finds a bird and can stand a bird yep yeah i mean with the technology that we have now i wish i'd have had this when i was bird hunting really hard because you know we had we had beeper collars and we had an an e-collar on them and we didn't run a tracking collar of any kind when i was bird hunting hard and then uh you know i would have loved because i had some real rangy dogs and that that were steady and i would have loved to just let them go would have loved it would have saved me so many steps when i was younger too (laughs) (laughs) of course when you're younger you deserve that that's the whole that's true that's true well we're getting towards the end of your segment here on the upland nation podcast josh michaelis if you were going to leave us with one bit of advice about any aspect of working with dogs what would you tell us be patient uh these dogs these dogs are fantastic animals and they're so impressive and they are also very, very frustrating. Uh, keep cool, be patient, and you'll be better for it in the long run. Man, you know, those those words are ought to be uh, tattooed on the inside of everybody's forearm. Yeah. All useful information. Uh, lots more uh, to come in the second half of the podcast. Josh Michaelis, joydogfood.com is where you learn more about them and what they're doing and about Josh too, by the way. Uh, thanks so much for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Have a great day. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, we've still got a lot more. Speaking of handling dogs, we're going to talk about uh, running birds and pointing dogs. We've got a discussion on non-toxic ammo from one of the organizations that is advocating more and broader use of non-toxic for all of us keep an open mind we'll discuss all that and more coming up in the second half of the upland nation podcast first let me pardon me let me remind you that uh, we're brought to you by trulockchokes.com they've got choke tubes for just about everything right now we're thinking turkeys yeah 
I'm getting way too many turkey pictures. No, I don't mind. Keep sending them. Uh, they've got that, of course, and everything else. <laughs> they make over 2,000 different shotgun chokes. So if you got a gun, go on the website, truelockchokes.com. Match your gun to the type of hunting, to the type of bird, to the type of uh, choke you're looking for. And then if you're wondering what the heck all those notches in your choke tube mean, because you just got a new pointer shotgun, for example. Well, they've got identification codes for just about everything there. It's all at truelockchokes.com, your resource for all things choke tubes. And for everything else, midwayusa.com is where you go. They got just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors. Yep, uh, dummy launchers, I was talking about that just a while back. Uh, boots, extremely competitive pricing. It's all there at MidwayUSA.com. Apparel of all sorts, including a lot of Upland apparel. So shop your way through MidwayUSA.com. Back to the floor of the Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic here in Minneapolis. Uh, the crowd for a Sunday afternoon is pretty darn strong. I'm thinking we're probably going to have a great turnout by the end of this show. Um, and one of the things that is a very hot topic right now is uh, what I'll loosely call non-toxic ammunition. So Hannah, Hannah Leonard joins me. She's with Sporting Lead Free. Hannah, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, congratulations, you just got a promotion. Tell me about that. I did. So um, I was the outreach coordinator for Sporting Lead Free, and I have been for almost the last two years. And now um, with our success of our messaging, I am now the program director. So that means that I get to focus more on our national efforts. And we brought on a new outreach coordinator who will be focused on our Wyoming region. So well, as we grow, I get to grow with the company. Well, tell me a little bit about the organization real quick, well, what, what your objectives are and how you're doing that. Absolutely. So Sporting Lead Free is a non-political, non-regulatory education initiative for informing folks on switching to lead-free alternatives in the field. So whether you're upland hunting, big game hunting, or angling, we provide education and resources for folks to make that switch. That's got to be a tough road to hoe. It is. It is a slow burn, um, but I will say that it has been really, really awesome and exciting, especially here at Pheasant Fest, how much great reaction we've had from folks. Um, I had a gentleman this morning who came to the booth and said, I will absolutely never stop shooting my lead bullets. And he walked away 10 minutes later, a little teary eyed saying, wow, I uh, just learned a lot and I am very excited to learn more. And you know, I've been around the block on all of that, not just from a personal basis, but from hearing everybody and all their excuses for not going to non-toxic. What convinced that guy? That guy was convinced just in our conversation. He said, you know, I, I didn't realize that that amount of lead was enough to, to take down an eagle. So it's only 20 milligrams of lead. It's the weight of a ladybug. Um, that's enough to kill an adult bald eagle. So he saw that visually. We have these great displays at our booth. Um, so he saw that and then he also didn't realize that sometimes 
when we bring home meat to our families, that might contain a little bit of lead. And he has grandkids at home, and so he wants to make sure that when he's bringing home meat and he's continuing that hunting heritage, that he's doing it in a way that his future generations can can not only exist in that same space and hunt, but also be healthy enough to do that. So let's cut to the chase, pardon the pun, you'll get what I mean in a moment here. <laughs> because um, what do you tell the guy who two years ago was peppered with a bird shot? Oh my goodness. Um, and they decided to leave it in. Uh, why, why isn't he dying of lead poisoning? <laughs> well, so a couple of things there. Uh, that sounds awful. And yes, sorry to I am, can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine that either. So when we hold lead in our hand, lead is pretty stable in that in that environment. So in your in our skin, it's going to be pretty stable. Okay. As soon as lead hits an acid, so ah. let's talk about you know our stomach acids. Mm -hmm. um, birds have a very acidic digestive system. Um, also, our marinades that we are cooking our meat in are typically an acid. So as soon as that lead touches that acid, that's when it becomes really readily absorbable. So in the case of someone being peppered with shot. Um, they might not be experiencing those effects because they're not, their bodies might not be as acidic as our stomach acids. Um, but I did speak with a gentleman earlier this morning that he um, rescued a, uh, a swan that had been shot. Um, and it actually didn't end up dying from the wounds from the shot. Sure. But it had lead in its GI tract, and that's ultimately what took that bird. And we've heard about how that happens. Of course, there's a lot of, lot of ways, but, uh, you know, it's gut piles and it's uh, whatever else. But uh, uh, when a human eats a pheasant breast with one pellet in it, is it just because it passes through so quickly, or is there risk there as well? So, and I want to back up a little bit too, right. and I want to say that this, again, we're not trying to fear factor folks, sure. right? Like if you and I eat a little bit of lead, we're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, for humans, there is no known safe amount of lead for us to consume. Um, in Europe, they have levels within their food that is labeled as safe and unsafe. We do not have that in the United States. However, that, oh, that explains my wife's switch to a different chocolate brand by yes, the way that's red yes, hot right now but that is a red hot topic right <laughs> oh my gosh they're coming after our chocolate now no um so for for humans you know if we like my dad and he's gonna kill me i always tell the story he's pretty bad at, at cleaning his birds mm -hmm. and so you know you kind of giggle you have that you know bite down on that shot you spit it out um but like i just mentioned earlier when it hits an acid that's when it becomes kind of dangerous yeah, so lead yeah. shot you know that big chunk Yes, as humans, if we eat that, you know, it'll pass through usually. However, when it hits our stomach acids, that's now being in our bloodstream right. and that's now being stored in our bones and our brain. So just like how we took lead out of gasoline, lead out of paint, getting that lead out of those water pipes, um, that it accumulates over time. Yeah. So even if we yeah. have it once, you know, it's still in our system. Same thing with our wildlife. So those eagles, they can eat that lead over and over again, and it's just going to take that one kind of tipping point to, to send them over yeah. the edge. Let's talk a little bit about the practical side of things. Uh, you know, my big gripe would be if I was all those guys walking past your booth, it would be, yeah, but non-toxic ammo costs so much. And then many versions of it are less efficient. 
So how do you counter those arguments? Great question. So um, first, let's talk about what sporting activity that you're interested in. We, like I said earlier, we talk about big game hunting, upland hunting, and angling. So because we're at Pheasant Fest, let's talk about upland hunting. So the alternatives in upland hunting for lead are going to be steel, bismuth, tungsten, and then also copper-plated bismuth. So you'll see people kind of balk at the price, right? Well, the cool thing with non-toxic is that you are investing not only in what you are spewing across the landscape, right? As we shoot, not all of our pellets are hitting those birds, but what you're bringing home is also gonna be non-toxic, right? So you kind of have to level with yourself and say, okay, I might be spending a little bit more on these boxes of bismuth, but I'm investing in this hunting heritage. Yeah. I'm investing in knowing that in future generations, there aren't gonna be folks out there saying, hey, hunters are out here poisoning animals, they're poisoning kids. They're gonna be able to say, hey, I know what I put on the landscape was safe for my family and for that wildlife. Yeah. And so it's just kind of about leveling with folks on what their um, values are. Yeah. So, um, and additionally with the performance standpoint, I get a lot of people that say, oh, well, this and this and this, that doesn't work. And I say, well, when did you last try, you know, say a copper bullet or say, you know, steel? And they're like, oh, well, when it first came out in the 80s, it was terrible. I was like, well, what did your cell phone look like in the 80s? <laughs> you know, so with everything, anything that can be engineered, of course, we're going to, you know, engineer it. We're going to make it better. So technology improves. So try it again. Go out there, pattern your shotgun, try different brands, um, try different chokes. Like I would just, when you go and buy a new rifle, you don't just go out and shoot a deer with it. You go to the range and you sight it in. Do the same thing with your shotgun. Get to know that shot, get to know your chokes, see what's going to happen in the field. My evolution uh, went through a phase where I actually asked my followers, um, how many shots do you take during a bird hunting season? And granted, bird hunters are going to be giving a different answer than a deer or an elk hunter or somebody like that. Um, you know, most of us take, uh, you know, three, four dozen shots. Maybe we shoot four or five boxes in the field. And if you do the math on a per round basis, that's uh, a Starbucks coffee every other day. Absolutely. And that's all. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess I'm I, I, I'm I'm lecturing now, but, <laughs> but I did the math yeah. and it's not that bad, it, but it is a perception. So Absolutely. what do you do to encourage us to uh, do? Are there incentives? Is there a reason? Go ahead and give me the scare tactic if you want. But <laughs> is, 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 uh, is there anything coming down the pike in the way of impositions on us? So, like I mentioned earlier, too, we are a non-regulatory yeah, yeah. organization. So you won't see us lobbying. You won't see any of that. We really, truly believe that education is the way to go forward with this message. Um, a lot of folks, they'll walk past the booth, they'll see the lead free, and they'll say, oh, this is one of those organizations that they're just a back alleyway. They're going to take our guns. And I'm going to just flip that on its head. And just like I said earlier, this is our way to protect our hunting heritage because we know better this is a human-caused issue. We have a human-caused solution, which is so cool. How many other things that we do to the environment we can't fix individually? As, as individual hunters and anglers, we can fix this issue, which is so cool. That's so empowering. So I always want people to walk away from my booth not only feeling like they gained a lot of knowledge, but also feeling empowered. We have a website full of resources to help you make that switch. Um, whether you're switching for wildlife, 
for your family or for hunting heritage. Any one of those, I'm going to pull your heartstrings on them, um, or I'll find something else and pull your heartstring on that, and and you know you'll leave my booth smiling. So. With a sticker, or with something. a sticker, or a koozie, <laughs> or you you name it. Well, that's just great, and and just to, so that if we do want to learn more about, uh, if we want to finally come to our own conclusions about a rationale for using non-toxic, what's the website address? So our website is Sporting Lead Free, all one word. So sportingleadfree.org. That's Hannah Leonard with Sporting Lead Free. I got to practice that, I guess. It's a tongue twister. It is a mouthful. (laughs) It is a mouthful. But it does make you talk about it again for another 20 seconds right here. Thanks so much for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Thanks for having me. And we are brought to you by Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. This time of year, it's time to take a lesson or 10. Yeah, I'm going back, taking the RV, staying a while, going to shoot all the games, including, hopefully, very soon, a new game. After Hours Wednesday, don't forget, if you're in Western Oregon and you're looking for some place to shoot after work, just call Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. Get the number at midvalleyclays.com, and they'll leave the lights on for you on Wednesdays. They'll stay as long as you want to shoot at midvalleyclays.com. Sage and Breaker is where you go for your gun cleaning and care and transport, I guess I'll call the third leg of that stool there. Sageandbreaker.com is where you learn more about all of their gear. Free shipping on orders of 50 bucks or more. Yeah, the range bag is just about back. Yeah, sold out. That's how good it is. Uh, Take a look at all of your gear right now, your gun cleaning gear and your guns. You might need a new cleaning mat some of the tools or some of the uh, what we call consumables like their clean lube and protect or their firearms grease sign up for the email list and you won't miss out on future sales you'll get first notice when the range bags are back in stock it's all at sageandbreaker.com well I learned this again in South Dakota last season it was very hot and the birds you know, all pheasants there where we were, um, were all hanging out in those big patches of cattails because that's where the shade was. The ground was a little moist. Uh, in fact, the only moisture around. So they were cooler in there for the shade and the moisture. And what we would have a problem with, the dogs would hit a point and we'd be standing there. And sometimes we had two or three guys, plus me. Thank you all for coming, by the way, to the Fur Feathers Friends event. Um, but uh, we'd all stand there and admire the dog. And, and then we'd all kind of put, put a push onto that cattail patch. And son of a gun, if the birds would not run out or sometimes fly out the far side. Sharp tails have done the same thing. You know, you get to that one isolated patch of snowberry or wild plum or something else on the hillside. Dog hits a point. You walk in alongside the dog. They're gone because they went out. Okay, I'm a slow learner, but I learned this. Once you figure out where those birds are, circle it. Everybody be safe, only shoot high birds, but at least if you're blocking off some of those other escape routes, just like you would in a, you know, a block and drive hunt in a cornfield, um, there's a better chance you're going to get, somebody's going to get a shot. 
send in the flushers, send in the junior partner in your hunting party, or <clears throat> invest in a caterpillar D9. Put something in there to get the birds out, and if you got enough people covering all the escape routes, maybe somebody will get a shot. Be safe. Enjoy yourself. Use the circle strategy next time you're looking at a big patch and a small bird. Well, thank you all, especially Josh Michaelis of Joy Dog Food and Hannah Leonard of Sporting Lead Free. Sure learned a lot. I appreciate all of you who comment at social media platforms. Thanks for all those great old dog photos and stories. Yeah, if you haven't read them yet, get, get over there and leave the Kleenex handy. I appreciate those who left ratings and reviews and all of our sponsors, Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Joy Dog Food, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, and True Lock Chokes. You know, there's lots to learn at findbirdhuntingspots.com, whether it's dog training or looking for new ideas for places to go this season. So come on down anytime, findbirdhuntingspots.com. And until we learn more next time, I hope to see you on the range. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening to the Upland Nation podcast.